I'm delighted now to welcome Lawrence Gonzalez. He is the author of several books, including Deep Survival and its sequel, Surviving Survival. And the new book is called Flight 232, A Story of Disaster and Survival. Welcome to the Radio Cafe. Thank you. So you have been studying and writing about plane crashes for much of your life. And when I first heard about this, I wondered, why would a person devote their life to this? And then I started reading the stories about your father, who was a World War II fighter pilot who was shot down over Germany. Could you tell us that story? Yeah, this story is told in Deep Survival. My father was a B-17 pilot, and he was on one of those very large raids they were making over Germany near the end of the war when the Germans shot his left wing off, and the plane rolled upside down and started spinning so violently that it tore the plane into pieces. And he was in one of those pieces, which was the cockpit, and he fell 27,000 feet without a parachute and survived. These were stories that I heard when I was a little kid, and I had this very early interest in the question of why one person would survive and others not. He was the only survivor of his entire crew. And so another nine people died, and he walked out. Right, that's correct. Well, he didn't exactly walk out because he was badly injured, but he was captured by the Nazis and put in a prison camp hospital for the remainder of the war. How did he survive? We don't know. I mean, people survive very long falls, and they seem to do so at random. Uh, Where he fell was on a farm, and there was a railroad embankment there. So he fell on a slope, and it had snowed the night before, and he always wondered if that had helped to slow his fall a little bit. But his fall from 27,000 feet isn't by any means a record. People do survive falls like that sometimes. But it just influenced my thinking. Uh, And another story that influenced my thinking, another event that influenced my interest in aviation was in 1979, my first book came out, and I was going to go to Los Angeles to the American Booksellers Association convention there and promote my book. And I was going to go with a bunch of my colleagues, And I found out that they were going on a DC-10, and I had been studying DC-10s, and I didn't like the DC-10, which had some serious flaws. And so I decided not to get on that plane, and uh, the plane crashed outside of Chicago. The flight lasted uh, 31 seconds, and everyone was killed, including my friends and colleagues. And that left a very deep impression on me concerning the need to approach airline safety from a different point of view. Well, this whole, I mean, the intuition that you had, I'm not going to get on that plane because it's a DC-10. I mean, the reality is, on the one hand, it is not a safe plane compared to other planes that were in the sky at that time. On the other hand, DC-10s were taking off and landing many, many times a day, and you somehow knew not to get on that plane. How do you understand that? Well, I understand it in a couple of different ways. One way was that I just didn't get on DZ-10s at all in those days because I was doing so much research about that plane that it scared me. So it wasn't that particular flight. You know, it was all DC-10 flights that I was avoiding. So if I was going somewhere, I would call up to buy a ticket and I would say, what kind of aircraft is this? And if it was a DC-10, I would just ask for a different plane. So that's one way to think about it. Another way to think about it is it's just pure chance. I mean, I was lucky. And not every intuition results in, you know, a a good outcome. But 
it's not a bad idea to listen to your gut. As many of your stories of survival under very dire circumstances have shown, there's a number of people who have said, listen to your gut. Uh, This is not a good day to be on a sailboat, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And people often get themselves into bad situations simply by not paying attention to both their surroundings and what they're feeling in their bodies. I mean, they're The big challenge of being alive is that you have to define what's self, what's you, and what's everything else. And that's the essential problem of living things. We all must do that. And there's two big systems that humans carry around for doing that. One of them is the immune system, which is constantly trying to figure out what's you and what's not. And the other is the emotional system, which is constantly taking in the environment through the senses and labeling things as good or bad. Is this something I should move toward? Is it a pizza? Is this something I should move away from? Is it a you know a, a lion that's got loose? Or is it nothing at all that matters? Most things get labeled in a neutral fashion so that you can ignore them. Many people, when they're confronted with situations of tremendous stress and danger, do things that really aren't adaptive. They, for example, freeze, or they go into a panic. We evolved over hundreds of thousands or millions of years to survive. Why is it that we do things that are not adaptive? Because we're doing things that essentially were adaptive 100,000 years ago. So if you can picture a person 100,000 years ago, and I pick that number arbitrarily, facing a situation you're you don't have clothes you don't have language you're out in the wild trying to survive if you're the one who can be the first to spot the lion and run away uh, run away in a panic i might add then you're the one who's going to get to reproduce and pass on your genes and you'll pass on that trait to the next generation Um, and those traits have been passed on to us so panicking and running running freezing panicking running are all part of this survival mechanism that statistically worked over time. It didn't work for every single person, but it worked for enough of them that we're here today. The freezing is a good idea because lots of animals can't see very well if you're not moving. If the animal then, you know, does come after you, running away is a good idea in many cases because that's probably the only way you're going to survive. There's a a third kind of freezing that takes place if if the animal catches you and starts to kill you if you play dead, certain kinds of animals, cats especially, will leave you. Because mother cats often take their prey and they don't kill it. They leave it, or they rather they kill it, but they don't do anything with it right away. They go get their, their cubs and they bring them back to show them you know, how to hunt. So if the cat goes away, then you get away. So there are all these different mechanisms that, that are in place because of evolution. And they, they aren't adaptive in a modern world. Well, there's a story in your book, Deep Survival. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, these books are written so vividly that you feel like you're there. I mean, I was getting cold <laughs> listening to reading some of these stories about being in an ice cave. And But there's one story where some fellows decide to snowmobile in a way that they know could cause an avalanche, and in fact it does cause an avalanche, and the people at the bottom of the hill 
look look at it and say, oh, there's an avalanche. Let's get away. And one of them just stops and stares at this thing coming toward him and is killed. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, you have to understand that emotion and reason work kind of like a seesaw. The higher the emotion, the less you're able to reason. If you are able to bring up the level of logical reasoning, you can tamp down the emotions and come to some balance that allows you to behave in a useful way. In the case of the snowmobilers, they're out in the cold. They're racing around on these big engines. It's a big thrill. It engages the emotional system. And in the face of knowledge, in the face of information, that thrill is overwhelming. So they have the information that, yes, the avalanche danger is high today, but that's no match for the thrill of emotion. So they go up the hill, even though they know they're not supposed to. It's real easy for the emotional system to hijack logical thinking. Then the case where the guy freezes, that's the freeze response we were talking about. It's, it's built in. It's innate. And it doesn't, doesn't happen to everyone, but it's a completely understandable response. It's an animal response that has evolutionary value. The whole question of emotion and the role of emotion in our survival is an interesting one because there are emotions that we all have and that we share with our creatures in the wild, brothers and sisters, so to speak. And then there are what you write about as secondary emotions. So, for example, if somebody had had a bunch of good experiences in a row, snowmobiling or hang gliding, then that creates a sense, an emotional sense of invincibility that might lead them to do things that they know are too dangerous to do. Right. Exactly. You build up over your lifetime a whole library of secondary emotions that tell you, like I was saying before, what's going to be good for you and what's going to be bad for you. So if you touch a hot stove and it burns you, you will quickly learn that secondary emotion and not touch it anymore. However, if you have gone out, and these guys had, gone out and gotten a big thrill out of snowmobiling, that's a secondary emotion. And the way the system works is you don't have to think. That's why it's so efficient. It operates on its own, and it operates based on signals it receives from the environment. So if you get a certain signal that tells you you're about to have this experience you've had before, the script will run itself without your having to stop and think about it. Stopping and thinking is really inefficient. And so our whole makeup is based on doing what's most efficient because that's how we survive. So these guys were really doing what the system was telling them to do. It just happened to be the wrong circumstances for that because they'd never had the avalanche experience before. They had always had the experience that if I if I do this, if I gun the gas and run up this hill, I will have a very good feeling for the rest of the, you know, hour. And there's another kind of emotion that comes into play that gets people into trouble, which is, this is my vacation, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to get to the top of this mountain. Yes, and we call that the vacation state of mind. Yes, you, you have invested in this. You've paid money. You've traveled. It's a hassle. You're here. You're going to get what's due to you. Apes, and humans are a form of ape, have a very keen sense of what's fair and what's not fair. And they, they want to get what they're due. And so, yes, that does play a role in it, for sure. We're talking to author Lawrence Gonzalez. So... Our emotions evolved over a very, very long time, 
I mean, the whole evolution of vertebrates and primates, and we share so much with other creatures. And then there's reason, and reason evolved too, and it evolved much later. And you write about this interplay of reason and emotion. How do you define reason? How do you use reason in a survival situation? I refer to it as the um, IKEA mind. So if you go to IKEA and buy a piece of furniture, it will come to you in a box, and it's all in pieces, and it has instructions. And if you follow these instructions one by one, you put the pieces together, it will turn into that piece of furniture. A chimpanzee cannot do that. There's no other creature on Earth that can do that. Only we humans can do that. And that's the part of the mind that we refer to as reason. It's a step-by-step kind of process. It's logical. It's, uh, it responds to things in order. It can plan for the future. And it can deduce because the, the instructions are very hard to understand. So you have to study them and figure out what they mean. Um, and all of this is falls under the the word reason that, that we'll use. And it's nothing like emotion. Emotion is fast, automatic, um, nearly instantaneous at some in some cases, and can take in a huge amount of information and process it. Reason can only take in little bits of information. It's really quite inefficient. And the, the working space for reason is pretty small, too. That's why you will hear about most all of these scientific breakthroughs and inspirations that come uh, sort of in a dream or when you're half asleep or when you're, you know, dozing off. You'll suddenly get a revelation and realize what the answer to your problem is. That's because your reasoning mind can't handle that stuff. It's handled below the horizon of consciousness. What's interesting is that people who are trained, for example, to do survival or self-defense or martial arts or indeed piling an airplane, they are trained to do things that were invented by reason, but if you're trained enough, those become second nature. They become the emotional instantaneous response. Right. So there's a process that leads to the creation of these automatic scripts that we follow. Think about learning to serve a tennis ball. The first time you try it, it's going to probably not work. And as you try it more and more, it's awkward and it's, you know, you have to work at it and think about each step of the process. Well, you're using reason to do this. Somebody's telling you what to do and you're doing it and trying to do it. And it's really very clumsy and awkward. But if you do it for long enough, it will gradually start migrating out of the frontal cortex and the motor strip on the top of your head. And it will migrate down into lower parts of the brain that are involved in automatic responses. So you will develop what I call a behavioral script. Some scientists call it a fixed action pattern that will be like tying your shoes. You know, you you take something that when you're four years old takes all of your concentration to learn to tie your shoes and you turn it into something that takes none of your concentration. You can actually be doing something else and thinking about something else while doing it. And indeed, if you try to think it through, once you've created this fixed action pattern, you'll mess it up. So this is a natural, normal, everyday system in our brains that we use constantly to, again, make ourselves more efficient in the world. Um, But we can learn. (laughs) You have to be careful what you learn. There's a story about an FBI agent who thought it would be a very good idea to 
learn to grab a gun out of someone's hand if he was ever attacked by someone with a gun. So he practiced. He practiced snatching the gun from his partner over and over and over and over, and he became very good at it. And one day, sure enough, he was on the street, and some bad guy came up and pointed a gun at him, and he snatched the gun away from the guy. So it worked. And then he gave the gun back to the bad guy. Oh, my goodness. And the reason he did that was because that's how he had practiced with his partner. And under under stress, the fixed action pattern that he had practiced came out. What Uh, happened? Well, his partner shot the bad guy, (laughs) unfortunately. But um, you see what I'm getting at, that, that these things, we practice these things every day without being aware of it. And we kind of have to be careful what we're practicing. Very much Because it's in stress, under stress, that's what's going to come out. We're talking to author Lawrence Gonzalez. Now let's talk about, I mean, you have studied so many stories of survivors and survival, and you've put yourself into all kinds of situations and done a lot of training and yourself become a pilot. And there seem to be some qualities that survivors have in common Maybe some of these are innate. Maybe some of these can be trained over time, some of both. What are some of these qualities? Well, the ability to think under stress is a big one. The survival instructors use the acronym STOP, S-T-O-P, for stop, think, observe, plan. And I would add to that act, because once you've made a plan, you have to actually do something. But the ability to remain calm is essential And it goes along with what we've been talking about. The emotional system's really more powerful than the thinking brain and can hijack the thinking brain. And so in our ordinary lives, I believe, we can observe ourselves reacting to stress and see are we how how well are we behaving. I mean, if you're stuck in traffic, are you finding yourself pounding on the steering wheel and yelling and honking your horn? Or are you saying, you know, being in a traffic jam is part of modern life. I think I'll listen to some music. And it's interesting how cultural that is. I remember being in Indonesia in Bali and nobody had road rage and they had traffic jams all the time and they just had a different culture. They mm-hmm. they thought, well, this is part of what we do. We get stuck in traffic jams. Yeah. And in India, if you notice in traffic, everybody honks, but it's not an angry, outraged honking. It's just, in fact, I saw a news report where the news reporter said to the to a driver, well, why are you all honking? And he said, well, that's what you do when you drive. You, honk, you drive and honk. <laughs> so, but the ability to cope in day-to-day life and to deal with the small emergencies of life is, I think, indicative of how people will behave in larger emergencies. In my book, Flight 232, it is notable that most of the people in the crash who survived didn't panic. Some of the, a few did, you know, they didn't panic. They came out in a pretty orderly way. They helped one another. There were some very heroic rescues that took place when people could have just run away. And so people behaved pretty well in those circumstances. Let's talk about that. I mean, there's another story of a DC-10 what happened? What went wrong? What caused that plane to crash? Uh, DC-10 is a three-engine plane. It has one engine on each wing and one through the tail. And at cruise flight at 37,000 feet, the engine in the tail of that plane exploded because of a defect in manufacture of this big disc on the front of the airplane. You can see them 
if you go out to the airport and look at the jets, you'll see this big fan on the front. That's the thing that blew up. And all the pieces flew out, and they cut through the tail and severed the hydraulic lines. The DC-10 is steered by way of hydraulics. So all of a sudden, this airplane had no steering. And as it was rolling over on its way to diving into the ground from seven miles up, the pilot, the captain, gave full power to the right engine and zero power to the left engine, and this asymmetrical thrust lifted the right wing up and leveled the plane. And he was able to keep the plane level. He had help from another pilot for the next 45 minutes until they made it, made their way to Sioux City, Iowa, where they crashed in a giant fireball. And if you care to see a video of that crash, you can go to flight232.com and watch that video. It's a very, very rare piece of evidence because almost never do airline crashes get caught on tape. How did this one get caught on tape? Well, because they had 45 minutes of wandering around in the sky, they had called in the emergency, and the people at Sioux City knew they were trying to get there. And so every emergency vehicle and news media person from 100 miles around came to the airport, and this young cameraman just happened to be in the right position when it came in and caught it. But yeah, it was a very, very unusual event, because if you do watch that video, you'll see a fatal crash take place. It explodes, it bursts into pieces. I mean, by all rights, everyone should have been killed, and yet 184 people out of 296 survived that. Which is amazing. I mean, you see, I saw this video, and you look at it, and like the people who were there on the ground, they didn't even go to try to help people at first because they didn't think anybody, and then suddenly people were walking around. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if you look at flight232.com, you'll see and there are also photographs of some of the people who came out of there about 130 of the people just walked away. There's a lady uh, I have a photograph of this lady after the crash standing there drinking a cup of water and she's in like a black cocktail dress and her hair isn't even mussed. So it's it's a very very unusual event. Now, the people who survived, tell us some of their stories. To what extent were these stories dumb luck? To what extent were they people remaining cool under pressure? I mean, position in the airplane certainly had something to do with it. So there was a lot of a lot of randomness involved in this. But there were cases where people had to make decisions, life or death decisions. There was one man in near the rear of the plane, which was not a good place to be because of the way the fire spread. And he, when the plane came to a stop, everyone was upside down, hanging from their seatbelts. And he popped his seatbelt and fell to the ceiling. And the cabin was filled with smoke, and he could see fire. And he thought, I'm going to die here if I don't do something. And he couldn't go forward, but to the rear was this fire. And he thought, well, I'd rather chance getting burned than just stay here and die so he ran and he jumped through the fire and when he landed he was standing in the bright sunshine on the runway completely without a scratch now did he know that the plane was open and that he would get out that way no he could just see fire and he thought you know where there's fire there's oxygen so this must be the outside world but i mean he thought through so instead of panicking and letting emotion take over he was able to stop and think like I said, S-T-O-P, stop, think, observe, plan. So he went through this very rapid little scenario of where there's fire, there's oxygen. I'm going to die if I stay here. I'm going to take my chance. And he jumped. 
and when he found himself outside, here's a guy in a suit. His pencil is still in his pocket. I mean, he's totally unscathed. And a man in a truck came racing up and said, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. Who are you? How did you get here? You know, thinking that he was like a ambulance-chasing lawyer or something. But he, he was a fellow who made a decision that saved his own life. And he'd had, what, Marine? <clears throat> he was a fighter pilot. Fighter pilot yeah. training, yeah. He had been a fighter pilot. And so, yes, he did have an advantage over others in that he had had a lot of training. Uh, but there were a bunch of other people who hadn't had that training who did smart things. Cliff Marshall was just a businessman, and he noticed when the plane came to a stop that there was a hole in the floor and he could see sky. So he's looking up through the floor, and a piece of the fuselage is broken off so he can actually see a way out. And he pushed a little girl up into the space and climbed up after her and then got her up on top of the fuselage in the middle of this burning plane stuck in a cornfield and then started pulling people out of the hole as they came up. So he saved about eight lives there that day. And one mother went running out and forgot her child inside, and somebody else saved the kid. Yes. Two-year-old Aaron Badis was left hanging from his seatbelt by his mother. His mom panicked and popped her seatbelt, and then was it was a combination of just her confusion and panic and people sort of ushering her out with good intentions, you know, like, hey, lady, here's the way out without realizing that her kid was still back there. And and she got out into the sunlight and thought, oh, my God, where's my baby? Fortunately for Aaron, a man, Bruce Benham, I think was his name, unsnapped the kid's belt and took him out and handed him to his mother. And at the 25th reunion last July, I met Aaron Badis. Accidents like that, traumas like that, must leave so many different kinds of marks on the psyches of people who go through them and who survive them. And like in that example, I was trying to imagine how it might have affected the mother to have realized that she forgot her kid inside. I mean, that can last a lifetime. Yeah, and I think it has. If you listen to, I've tried to capture this in the book, but it was very hard for her to tell that story. I mean, it was just terribly painful for her to tell that story. I mean, you could see this, this I saw the whole family there when I, when I met them at the reunion, and you could see that they'd been through some terrible stuff. I mean, they had that look about them. And, and I've met many people from the flight, people I met while doing the book and people I met after the book came out, where you can just see them from across the room. You can look and see that guy there, I can tell, has been through something. It's a haunted look. You must develop an eye for that if you're somebody who studies survivors and plane crashes. Yeah, definitely. And many people have that look, but they also have a great deal of joy in their lives because they know that they're here by chance. And I met David Milford, who was six, I think, at the time. And uh, I met him and his wife and their six-month-old baby, at this reunion, and they had that look of like, wow, look at us, you know, we're alive, we're here. They were going to enjoy life. We're talking to Lawrence Gonzalez, author of the books Flight 232 and Deep Survival, among others. One of the things that is so interesting and that links 
your work to what's happening here at the Santa Fe Institute is this whole question of complex systems and trying to build safety into a system. It turns out that when you make a system more complex, you also make it more prone to errors that weren't there before in the process of trying to make it safer. You're not necessarily making it safer in the ways that you had hoped or ma making it more risky in different ways. Explain that to us. Well, you said it pretty well. The, the more complex you make a machine system, the more prone to accidents it becomes. So at a certain level of complexity, you get a machine that has catastrophic accidents as part of its normal functioning. So if you make something like the space shuttle or a nuclear power plant or a modern airliner, you're creating a machine that has a 100% chance of having a catastrophic failure at some point. It's going to be rare, but it's going to happen if you operate this machine long enough. And you will get failures in the machine at all different scales, ranging from, you know, a light bulb burns out. That's one kind of failure. Or an engine fails. That's a bigger failure. But eventually you're going to get a failure that destroys the system. And so part of the work that I'm doing at the Santa Fe Institute is looking at these machine systems and asking if there is some way that we can model this complexity on a computer and see these accidents happening in simulated fashion to study them and see is there some better way to make these pieces of equipment last longer or fail less or what, whatever. We don't know yet because we haven't done the simulations yet. But certainly a lot of thought needs to go into these these kinds of systems because you put your your loved ones on them and there is always the chance that one of these catastrophic failures is going to occur. What's interesting about this is that, as you said, failures, when you have complex modular systems, which is, I mean, think about the devices that are in front of us right now. We're looking at these little mixers and headphones and devices that have stuff in them that I don't even know what they do. And they fail all the time, but they fail in small ways. So I hear a little bit of static in my earphones, so what? But they still work. And in systems like airplanes or automobiles or the Internet, failure is a daily occurrence in things that seem to be working just fine. Yes, well, think about this. The equipment we're working with here does have some energy in it, but it doesn't have a lot of energy in it. So failures are not going to tend to propagate across the boundaries of these little modules, as we're calling them, to, to explain a little bit. When, when I say modules, I mean an instrument like an airliner is built up of many, many modules. You could say the engine is a module, and the fuel system is a module, and the flight controls are a module and the hydraulic system is a module. You can also break those modules down into subsystems and submodules. And usually if you have a failure inside of one of the modules, it doesn't destroy the whole system. It doesn't travel. And that's why you have a modular system in the first place? Well, one of the reasons you have a modular system is because there's no other way to get the job done. But yes, it's good to design these machines in a modular fashion in the hope that any failures stay within the module. So you can have an engine failure and you've got two other engines and you keep flying until you need to land. You can also have a hydraulic system failure and you've got three hydraulic systems and the other two can take up the slack. When you get into big trouble is when these failures start to cross the modular boundaries. 
and that's exactly what happened in flight 232. The engine blew up. That's one module gone, but then it threw shrapnel out that cut the hydraulics, and there's another either module or several modules gone. And from there, it was just a matter of time before every other module got taken down. But the reason this happened is because of the amount of energy in the system. So a low-energy system won't do this. It'll only happen if you're trying to harness a whole lot of energy to do a particular job. So in the case of an airliner, you've got the energy of your position in the sky. You're seven miles up. You've got the energy of your momentum. You're going 80% of the speed of sound. You've got the energy that's locked up in all the fuel on board. You've got a huge amount of energy. And the device itself, the airplane, is designed to channel that energy in a controlled fashion. The airplane is trying to fly apart at all times. It's trying to break itself. What do you mean? Well, take a look at the spinning wheel on the front of the engine. That big fan spins at 3,500 RPM. Millions of pounds of centrifugal force are being pulled outward constantly. It's trying to fly apart. It wants to break apart. And the trick that you're trying to pull is to prevent that from happening and instead to control all that energy, stream it out the back of the airplane and push the airplane forward to its destination until you can undo all that energy. You're going to gradually lower the energy level. You're going to descend. You're not going to descend straight down. You could get rid of all your energy very easily that way. You're going to descend at a shallow angle. So it's all very slowly dissipated till you get to the ground and you turn everything off. Now the energy's gone out of the system. So you're safe again. One of the problems with the whole question of safety is not only that these machines are complex and they have little bits of failure going on all the time, but for example, Flight 232 was certified as being safe before it went up. Right. And this is a flaw in the system, I, I see. Our way of thinking about these things may be a little backwards. In order to certify this airplane to fly, the company that built it, McDonnell Douglas, had to go to the FAA and say, here is the evidence that shows that these accidents won't happen. So this is the evidence that shows that this fan on the front of the engine won't break during the lifetime that we give it. And here's the evidence that there's no possible failure that can completely disable this aircraft in flight so that the pilot can't handle it. Well, all this evidence, this prediction that they handed to the FAA was wrong. So they put at the chance of the aircraft becoming completely unflyable, they put the, the percentage chance as one in a billion which meant that all the DC-10s in all the world could fly for their entire lifetimes, and this accident would never happen, statistically. Of course, that's the accident that did happen, and that's always the accident that, that, that happens. So in thinking about these systems, I think we need to start saying, first of all, we understand that this system is going to crash. This type of failure is going to happen. Now we need to start thinking about how these modules are connected so that we can uh, isolate them a little better from one another so that it pushes this accident into the future more. And then you might start to get a situation where, in fact, the airplane flies for its lifetime and gets retired before the accident ever happens. Well, there's a human element in this, too. In other words, the people who are giving you the reasons have some self-interest involved in it. They've put a whole lot of money, and there's a uh, there's a whole lot riding on the success of this plane, and so they don't want a plane to be grounded. Right. 
Yeah. I, I mean, money is a huge motivator in this whole scheme of things. And don't forget that the people who work for the FAA formerly worked for the airlines and airframe companies and engine manufacturers, and it's a kind of revolving door situation with the wolves watching the hen house. So it's it's an imperfect system, and it's certainly a human system. The person is always part of the system, and so it's a you know it's a complex problem to to sort through. But I think there's beginning to be some new thinking on the part of people like those in the National Transportation Safety Board, which investigates the crashes. And they're starting to suggest, yeah, maybe we need to rethink the way we're certifying aircraft. We're talking to author Lawrence Gonzalez. There's another set of issues that comes up, which I find very interesting, and which probably most of us have experience with, which is that, for example... If you're driving an old clunker car, you're going to be more careful than if you're driving a car with all kinds of safety features that feels like you're in some kind of surround sound music climate controlled spaceship of luxury. And I've noticed that people who drive those cars don't always drive as well because they think they're safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they're also what you describe is also very distracting. And don't forget, we talked about these fixed action patterns or behavioral scripts that we develop. People develop those for driving cars, which is not a very good thing. But we do. We can learn to, most of us have learned to drive automatically. Well, my car drives home wherever I am. Yeah. Even if I'm not trying to get home. Right. Exactly. And so this system, combined with all the distractions in a in a modern vehicle, make for a dangerous situation. And the only way around that is to practice being aware which most people don't necessarily want to do. I mean, but practicing being aware of what you're doing and asking yourself, what am I really doing? Most of us, the most dangerous thing most people will ever do is drive a car. It reliably kills 30, 35,000 people every year, which if we invented it today and we presented it to the regulatory bodies and said, hey, I've got a new invention, it's really great, it'll only kill 35,000 people a year, they would say, are you crazy? (laughs) We're not going to let you make it. But we all do it. There are some examples of inventions that were designed to increase safety. I think, what was it, anti-lock brakes? Mm -hmm. And a couple of those others. And it turned out that the accident rate went up, not down. Right. They first tested anti-lock brakes in Germany with taxi drivers. And they gave them all anti-lock brakes and thought, okay, now the accident rate's going to go down. And the taxi driver said, I can stop faster now? Great, I'll go faster. So they just drove the system harder and the accident rate went up. The same thing happened in commercial shipping. When they introduced radar into commercial shipping, they thought, of course, the ships can now see each other, so the accident rate will go down. And the captain said, hey, we can see in in the fog now, we can go faster. So the accident rate went up. Now, in both those cases, it eventually leveled off again, but it shows you how introducing safety features can result in accidents. Let's get back to the question of who survives and who doesn't. There are some amazing stories in your book, Deep Survival, of situations where people went out for what they thought was maybe an afternoon sail or a short thing, and suddenly they're shipwrecked, they're lost at sea. And the qualities that 
you have to cultivate or people stuck in the Peruvian Andes at 15,000 feet or who knows what doing their hiking and climbing and are in very dire situations and they have to develop some it's an interesting combination of acceptance of the situation but not surrender to its danger mm-hmm. yeah it's survival by surrender is i think the phrase that i use for this and it's delicate balancing act in which you have to say to yourself you know i'm in this situation this is my new environment what is the best adaptation to this environment as opposed to saying, oh, my God, I wish I were home, I wish I were home, I wish I were home, which just wastes your energy, you say, okay, this is this is what it is. I'm here. I'm stuck on this mountain. Now, given that, what is the best right thing I can do next? So in the case of the climber that you're talking about, he said, well, I'm just going to try to get from here over to that rock over there. And that will be my job. And he had a broken leg. So he managed to get over to that rock. And then he looked around and he found another rock. And he said, I'm just going to manage to get to that place. So he set himself up tasks that were small, that were possible to accomplish. And when he accomplished them, he sort of had a little celebration in his mind. Like, okay, I accomplished that task. I've given myself permission to succeed here. And by that process, that and it took several days, he actually got off the mountain. And that is a typical, typical thing that you see in these survival situations. A guy went out solo cross-country skiing in Grand Teton during the winter and just slipped and twisted his leg and spiral fracture of one leg. A really, really bad thing to do. And he, um, the first thing he did was he set up his tent, checked all his supplies, determined what he had. He had something to eat. He heated up some water and had some hot chocolate. So this is a guy who's creating an environment for himself. This is the spot I'm in. I'm going to make the best of it. I'm going to nourish myself so that I have strength. And then after thinking it through, he decided he was going to scoot on his butt all the way out. And he did. And he did it in sets of 100 motions. And every hundred motions he dedicated to someone or something in his life that he loved. And he said, this is for my wife. And he did a hundred scoots. And he said, this is for my cat. And he did a hundred scoots. And he kept doing that until he hit the parking lot and he got out. And that having something to live for or somebody to live for or somebody you want to see again when you're in these life and death situations turns out to be a huge motivator. People who are socially connected do better. So if you have, if you're deeply embedded in a social environment at home, you have lots of friends, you have things you love to do, you have people you want to get back to, this is a huge motivator. And yes, it's a very big deal. Do you think that people who have that kind of temperament where they are likely to stop and think and observe and plan and then act, are those folks who to whom that kind of survival thinking comes naturally are they more likely do you think to put themselves into dangerous situations <laughs> not necessarily uh, I, I mean to tell you the truth i haven't entertained that question in my mind but just off the top of my head i would say not necessarily they may be inclined quite the opposite to try to avoid those situations the best 
way to survive is to avoid the crisis, you know. That's my MO. Yeah, and and I mean, if you, my my father, when I was training to be a pilot long ago, my father always said about the weather, if it looks bad, it is bad. And it's a simple rule. It's like, look up in the sky. You know, you see that big dark thing there? <laughs> that means don't go. And so discretion is the better part of valor in many of these cases. And I learned that in in my life the hard way. I mean, I was a big risk taker in my youth. But I have learned to stop, think, observe, and plan, I hope. And there's one case where your then 12-year-old daughter uh, you were caught in a snowstorm with her, and she was the one who said, Dad, we have to go this way. <laughs> well, I had been to lots of ski slopes. My daughter and I did a lot of snowboarding together. So we'd been to lots of ski places. And the lodge was always at the bottom. You know, at the bottom of the hill, there's the lodge. And I forget where we were. I think we were in Canada somewhere. We got caught in a blizzard, and we're halfway up the mountain. And I was pushing her downhill. I was leading her downhill. And she stopped me and said, where are you going? And I said, well, we've got to get to the lodge. <laughs> she said, it's up. It's not down because <laughs> the lodge was at the top of the hill. So, And it's interesting that sometimes children are really great survivors and keep their heads. Their Their instincts are still fresh. This is a very, very important thing for people to know about. So children under approximately the age of seven tend to survive better because they do what's natural. So if they're tired, they'll rest. If they're thirsty, they'll drink out of a puddle. If they want to hide, they'll crawl into a log and stay warm. They do just animal-like natural things, and they don't have a concept of being lost yet. They don't have their bearings in the world to the degree that they can say, I'm lost. They might think, you're lost if you're their mother. You know, If you see a little kid in a grocery store who's lost, he'll say, my mommy's lost. When you get to a certain age, you start to develop this keen sense of, of spatial relationships and being lost becomes a reality, and you develop the ability to panic emotionally, and you become very dangerous to yourself in the wilderness. So children age, you know, a young teen, like a 12-year-old, 14-year-old, is extremely vulnerable because if they get lost, they will panic and they will run, and they'll run till they drop and they will become dehydrated. They may even run across somebody's backyard and not know, not be able to think, hey, there's people here. And I, I have a friend who lost a son that way. They were on a bike ride in um, Utah, and the kid got ahead of the group. He was just racing along having fun, and he missed a turn. And the group made the turn and then realized he wasn't up there. And they came back and saw the place where the mistake was made, but they didn't find him in time. And he did just what I'm saying. He ran and ran and ran till he died. My goodness. There's one more question I wanted to ask you before we go, and that is there's, survival, there's different kinds of survival, and the kind of survival that is most visceral to us is I'm lost in the woods or I'm on a mountaintop with a broken leg and the kinds of things you write about. But then there's another kind of survival, which is we've gotten ourselves into a place where our planet is exceeding its carrying capacity, or we're putting so much CO2 into the air that we are baking our arable lands and turning them into deserts and things like that. And those are big survival issues for which we don't seem to have instincts. No. No, we're uh, creatures of the moment, and, and that's the system of evolution that we've 
arrived here with, unfortunately. And we don't have a very good sense of uh, limiting our use of things, especially when our neighbors are using them. And one of the things, in fact, that the Santa Fe Institute is doing that, that I think is very valuable is studying these mechanisms of collective behavior in the hope of finding some ways of improving our our stewardship of the planet. I think it can be done. I think it's going to take a terrific effort of that IKEA brain that I talked about. We have to use reason and not emotion in this because emotion is what's been driving us for millions of years. And uh, as good as it is, it's time to let reason take over and for us to start changing the way we use our resources. Lawrence Gonzalez is author of the book Deep Survival and its sequel, Surviving Survival. His new book is called Flight 232, A Story of Disaster and Survival. Thank you so much for being with us on the Radio Cafe. Thank you.